0: Uh, Some of you have asked how my trip went and it occurred to me in answering that question that uh, I had meant to uh, put some slides together, just a few pictures of what went on. Uh, Not that any of them were that absolutely fascinating, but uh, I did have the the privilege of uh, of standing uh, at night, late at night, at the base of a volcano that was erupting uh, about eight miles from the volcano spewing out huge molten lava boulders that were larger than a house. And we could actually hear it rolling down the side as we stood there at night. So I'll, I will try to remember to just bring a picture and put it up there for you so that you can see it. It was a awesome, awesome display of God's power. And yet, and yet, Job, when he writes, says to us that uh, all of these things, typhoons and earthquakes and, and volcanoes are nothing more than the outer fringe of his power. They're just the little decorations on the edge of his power. And then then Job says, how faint the whisper that we hear from him. And so what would it be like to stand in the thunder of his presence? And thankfully, we've been forgiven our sins, that Jesus has died for us. We've believed that. He died for us, he was buried, he rose again on our behalf. And because of what he did for us, we will stand in the thunder of the presence of the Almighty One uh, when, the, when the day finally comes when we're all gathered together there around the throne. I didn't mean to say any of that, but uh, well, that's, you, uh, we're not going to charge you any extra for that this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to begin a seven-week studies, a study, as you can see there, on the book of Ruth in a series entitled, hold on, I need to turn this on, in a series entitled, A Story for the Ages. This is part one, and entitled, A Journey to Despair. And we'll be unpacking Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 13 this morning. Now you and I know, and I know this is going to be a review, but what I feel like we need to do it. You and I know that every message here at the, at the Potter's House starts with a review. Because we're committed to keeping our messages in context. Both Brian and I and anyone else that stands in this pulpit wants to preach God's Word in context. In other words, we believe that every verse of Scripture builds on the, verse, the verses around it. Every verse takes something from the verse before it and gives something to the verse that follows it. It's a little bit like the parts of an engine. A little bit like the parts of an engine. Each of the parts does its own thing, and when all of the parts are connected to each other and doing their own thing well... The engine runs smoothly and moves your car down the road. But clearly, you can't move your car down the road if all you have under the hood is a lonely crankshaft. And I love the name, crankshaft, because both of those things are not good. But without it, you don't get anywhere. But if that's all you've got is a crankshaft, then it's going to be a a pretty, pretty bad day, I would say. In the same way, every verse in Scripture does its own thing well. But no verse is ever intended to stand alone. No verse is ever intended to stand alone. When it comes to interpreting Scripture, the only way to successfully interpret a verse is to discover how that verse works with the verses around it. Because any one verse... And trust me, I've been studying the word for more than 50 years now. Any one verse may have nine different interpretations if it stands alone. If you just unplug it and pull it out by itself, nine different ways you could understand it if it stands alone. But no verse in Scripture is ever meant to stand alone. So there might be nine ways to interpret a standalone verse but if you choose to study that verse in context, you can be fairly certain that most of those nine possible different interpretations will go away when you look at it in context. And when you look at the verse in context, the context guides you as you make the hard decisions of how you will understand that particular passage and uh, and how you're going to teach it to others when you have that opportunity. We should never teach one verse of Scripture. There's a chapter from from Psalm, Psalm 23. It's it's, It's one that we all love, but no passage of Scripture, no verse in Scripture should be taught as though none of the other verses in Scripture exist. Psalm 23 is a beautiful passage until we... Redact some of the. You know, we just agree together that that's not true, or this is ridiculous, and we shouldn't believe that. And and uh, let me take a minute to just read that to you. The Lord is my shepherd, in green pastures. He leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil. You prepare a table before me. My cup shall follow me forever. Doesn't make any sense anymore, does it? And the true beauty. I would not be quoting that. At a funeral, I often quote Psalm 23 at a funeral and personalize it for the person that that we've lost, to just say that the Lord was her shepherd and, and she had everything that she needed. But when we do that to Scripture, we take the meaning away from Scripture. We lose, we always, we always lose something. <coughs> excuse me, if we come to the conclusion that this verse just doesn't fit. When we take thoughts and verses out of context, they lose their meaning. And that's why here at the Potter's House, we establish the context for each passage by starting each passage with a review. You're probably used to that screen coming up at the beginning of any message. Well, starting a review is one thing when we're halfway through 1 Timothy, for example. But it's another thing when we're just starting out a book like the book of Ruth. So it might seem like we can't do a review this morning as we start the book of of Ruth, but we actually can. We can start with a review because of something that happens in the very first verse of the book. And I know that this is where the slide that says, in review normally shows up in any given week, but this week we'll have a slide that just says introduction. And by way of introduction, Ruth begins with these words. I'll read them to you now. We'll read them again later. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And that all by itself establishes the context for everything that will happen in the book of Ruth because the times of the judges were very chaotic for the people of Israel, very like we were just singing. All the messes that come up in our lives and the chaos that invades, that often happened in the times of the judges. And it's important to note that when the times of the judges ended, the times of the kings began, and that's something that will have bearing later in the book of Ruth. And by the way, I'm going to stop calling the book of Ruth a book. Because the book of Ruth is really the story of Ruth. (coughs) Excuse me, and that bodes well for our study because many literarians consider the book of Ruth and the book of Esther to be two of the greatest short stories that have ever been written. And I can tell you that that's where the title for this series comes from. Ruth, a story for the ages. You'll see that screen at the beginning of each of the messages. So there is a context for the story of Ruth, and remarkably, it does come to us in the form of review. I say that because way back on June 4th, I, I know you've probably slept since then, so you may have forgotten this, but I say that because back on June 4th, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 together in a message that was entitled, Travelers Took to Winding Paths. I don't know if you remember that message. Maybe you were somewhere else. And in that message, we had a short story, a very short story from God's Word about a man named Shamgar, who was one of the judges of Israel during the times of the judges. It was a very short story about a man who saved Israel from its enemies, from the Philistines, by striking down 600 Philistines using nothing more than an ox goad. I mean, it's just a very short story. That's pretty much all we know about Shamgar. In the book of Judges, God is often punishing his people for their decisions to pursue false gods instead of pursuing him. And that's where the violence and the hardship comes from in the nation of Israel during the times of the judges. You may remember that one of the reasons that I chose Shamgar that day is that despite being a very short story, it's it's a story that perfectly illustrates the pattern that, that comes up over and over and over again in the book of Judges. You see, in Judges, the people of Israel have settled down in the promised land after years of warfare when they were pushing the Canaanites out. God used them to push the Canaanites out. And God did that because of the great sin of the Canaanites who continually pursued false gods. They broke God's law. And they broke God's law because of that pursuit of the false gods. They weren't worshiping the one true God. Their lack of reverence for God and their lack of respect for God's word and God's law led them into lifestyles that brought God's punishment. But having said that, we had to add that Israel did not defeat or force all of the Canaanites back in, way back in June when we talked about this. Israel didn't force all the Canaanites out of Canaan, and the ones that remained behind were having far more negative influence on the people of God, the people of Israel, than the people of Israel should have allowed them to have. We said that because when the people from Israel mingled with the people that surrounded them... Instead of Israel influ- influencing the Canaanites for good, the Canaanites, it seemed, inevitably influenced Israel, the people of Israel, to do to sin. And then because of giving into this ungodly influence, the people of Israel often found themselves way off track, following winding paths and living godless lives. God would then step in and allow one of the nations there in Canaan to overrun Israel and then oppress and enslave the people from Israel. And and at times, the oppressing army would steal all of Israel's food, and quite naturally, that would cause a famine in the nation of Israel. In other words, Israel was suffering the consequences of turning their backs on God as they followed the godless nations around them. And as a matter of habit, when God made things difficult for them, they would take all that they could, and then finally they'd start to cry out to God, and they would beg Yahweh to deliver them from their oppressors. And then God would respond by sending a judge, you know, someone like Gideon or or Samson or like Shamgar, the guy in the story I told you way back on June 4th. So God would raise up a judge, and then he would use that judge to defeat the oppressing army and restore God's people back to him, and that's the pattern. And then just like clockwork, the people of Israel would remain faithful to God. They would follow Yahweh for as long as the judge was alive. But as soon as the judge died, the people would once again turn their backs on Yahweh and serve false gods again. So Yahweh would again raise up an invading army to punish Israel for their sin. And, well, you know the rest. This pattern was repeated over and over and over again. And the reason that it's important to know that this morning is that the story of Ruth takes place during one of those cycles of of disobedience, punishment, repentance, obedience, restoration, disobedience. In fact, the story of Ruth begins in the punishment phase of one of those cycles and ends in the restoration phase of one of those cycles. In other words, in the very beginning of the story, Israel had wandered away from God and God had punished them with an invading army and that invading invading army had caused a famine in the nation of Israel. And by the end of the story, God had raised up a judge and the judge had led the people to repentance and restoration and Israel was on track again and those circumstances gave rise to the story of Ruth. That's where the story of Ruth came from. The problem is that because that pattern was repeated over and over, we don't know exactly when this happened. We don't know which judge ruled Israel during the time of the story of Ruth. We do know that there was a famine during the time of Ruth, uh, during Ruth's time, and, and we know that there was a famine during the time of Judge Gideon. But uh, that alone doesn't mean that the story of Ruth happened during, the, during Gideon's time. So we don't know exactly who, when the story took place other than knowing that it took place during the times of the judges, and I'm confident that if God wanted us to know exactly when it took place, if that was somehow important for this morning, uh, that he would have have revealed that to us right in the story. So we don't know exactly when the story happened, and we don't know exactly when the story was written, and we don't know for sure who exactly wrote the story. Jewish tradition tells us that Samuel wrote this short story, but we can't be sure of that, so we don't know who wrote the story. But... Listen to me. We can be sure that God inspired this story, all of its bits and pieces, and then preserved it for us in his word, and that means that we have a whole bunch to learn from this short story that we'll be looking at over the next seven weeks. By the way, you ladies will love this. You ladies will love this, but about 90% of the story of Ruth is dialogue. <laughs> Two or more people having a conversation. Don't you just love it when your husband talks to you? Well, we're going to see in the beginning here that maybe that didn't happen, but, but there's, there's going to be more conversation than you can shake a stick at almost 90% of the book. And those conversations tell us a great deal about the conclusions we should reach as we study the story of Ruth. The people in the story of Ruth are going to keep one another on track when it comes to the things of God, and they'll help us to understand how important, how important face-to-face time with one another actually is. And with that introduction in place, it's time to begin unpacking the passage for this morning, and we always do that how? By standing together to read it. So if you would stand and read aloud with me from Ruth chapter 1, verses one 1- to 13. Oh, I hope you can see that. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died And she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kileon also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they, they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. As you take your seats, whisper a prayer that God would speak to you. This is your opportunity to ask God to open your eyes, that God would speak to you as we consider what this passage might have to say to us this morning. Now, we've been saying that the immediate context of the story of Ruth is the times of the judges, but there is a much broader eternal context for the story of Ruth, and for that reason, The story from God's Word this morning that I'm going to tell you won't come from the book of Judges, because by the time we reach the end of the story of Ruth, you'll see that this simple story is of eternal consequence, and it's a story that will have immense impact on humankind. And that's why instead of telling you a story about one of the Judges, I'm going to tell you a story about King David. And I can promise you that by the time we come to the end of the story of Ruth, not today, but seven weeks from now, when we come to the end of the story of Ruth, you'll understand why I chose to tell this story today. So, I mean, I'm asking you to make a commitment here to buckle in and and just uh, ride it out. But you'll know why I chose to tell this story about King David here at the beginning of our time in Ruth. Now, whether Brian is speaking or I'm speaking or, or someone else, you've probably noticed that we often make references to King David from the pulpit. And we do that because there are so many references to King David in God's Word. And so much of his life is either a lesson for us or inspiration for us as he pursues becoming an old man. His life influences our lives in so many ways. David was a man that God chose for an extremely important task, leading the people of Israel as their king. But I wonder this morning if you, knew, if you know when and how David became king, and perhaps more importantly, why David became king. It all traces back to the man who was the first king of Israel, a man named Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. And there are all kinds of things that we could say about Saul. We don't have time to go into all of the background there, but let me just let you in on a secret if you don't know it already. Saul was not a very good king. In fact, we have some reason to believe that Saul was a bad king, though not as bad as a guy like Ahab, perhaps, was. But it all traces back to Saul. He made some foolish and, and sinful choices, and God finally decided enough was enough and told the prophet Samuel that he planned to replace Saul as king. Now, I don't know how many movies you've seen about such things, but replacing a sitting king is a, is a, is a tricky thing to say the least, because kings tend to get peeved, if that's the right word, when someone makes an effort to remove them from power. That's just kind of how it goes. So God is going to tell the prophet Samuel to anoint David, the next king, in secret. He didn't use the name David, forgive me for that. But The next king is to be uh, anointed in secret, and, and even more remarkable than that, and, and I, I know you know this story and how it ends, But but God is going to send Samuel to anoint a 16-year-old boy no more than 16 years old, um, to be the next king. And with that background, this is the story from God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 16. And as always, feel free to turn there, and you can fact-check me as, as we go. The prophet Samuel was still reeling from God's words to him that he planned to replace Saul as king. And so God spoke up to Samuel and said, it's time to stop mourning over the fact that Saul will no longer be king. And God went on and said, get up and get the anointing ready and get going. I want you to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king, and you are to anoint him. Samuel was understandably concerned about this plan. How can I go and do this, he asked God. Surely, if Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord knew Saul's heart, so he told Samuel to take a heifer with him and And tell the people of Bethlehem that he had come to sacrifice to the Lord. God added that Samuel should invite Jesse to the sacrifice and reassured Samuel that he would tell Samuel what to do after that. In fact, spoiler alert, God was going to tell Samuel which of Jesse's sons would be king. Samuel, of course, did what the Lord had told him to do. He went to Bethlehem, and when he got there... When he got there, the elders of that small town were concerned, maybe even terrified. They thought that perhaps Samuel was there as a prophet and would pronounce a curse or a punishment on their city, on that little town where they lived. So they approached Samuel and tremblingly asked him, have you come in peace? Samuel assured that, them that they had indeed come in peace and that he planned to sacrifice to the Lord, just like God told him to do. He told them to get themselves ready for the sacrifice and then added that Jesse and his sons should also be present. When Jesse's son, Jesse and his sons arrived, Samuel took one look at the eldest son, a, a young man named Eliab, and he was a strong and kingly sort of a guy. And he thought, this is the guy. Surely, surely this is the guy that God has chosen to be the next king. But God spoke to Samuel and said, don't consider his appearance or his height because I have rejected him. God then went on to say that God doesn't look at things the way people look at things. People look at it the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Jesse then called Abinadab, the second oldest of his sons, and introduced him to Samuel. Samuel took one look at him and said, The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And when Shammah, the third oldest of Jesse's sons, uh, appeared before Samuel, no, Samuel said the same thing. And as the morning progressed, four more sons stood before Samuel and, and Samuel said the same thing about every one of them. The Lord has not chosen any of these. Well, Samuel by now was confused, truly confused. God had told him to anoint one of Jesse's sons, but then God had rejected each of the sons one by one. And so he looked at Jesse and he said, are these, are these all the sons that you have? Well, Jesse said, perhaps with a bit of a Snicker in his voice, yeah, well, we, uh, we do have one other son, the youngest son, and, but he's out tending our sheep. Send for him, Samuel said, because we won't do anything until he gets here. So Jesse sent to fetch his youngest son, David, and when David arrived, he was the picture of Elf. He was, he was well built, he was truly handsome. Uh, that's for you ladies, just so you know that. God spoke to Samuel again and said, On your feet, Samuel, this is the one. This is the one that you two are anoint. Anoint David as king because he is the one that I've chosen. Samuel took the oil of anointing and proclaimed in secret that this 16-year-old boy would be the next king. From that day onward, the Spirit of God began to work powerfully in and through David's life. And in the meantime, Samuel made his left that place and made his way back to a town called Ramah, where he was living at the time. And that is the story from God's Word. Now, getting back to the story of Ruth, you probably noticed from the reading that this story begins with a decision. I don't know if you caught that, if you were reading to yourself or reading to all of the rest of us. If you had been reading to yourself, you would have caught that, you would have noticed that this story begins with a decision. Remember, it was the time of the judges, and Israel was facing a severe trial. There was a severe famine in the land. And in the context, this was the result of, of God punishing His people for turning their backs on Him. We know that because it happened during the time of the judges. And in the midst of that trial, a man made a decision to take his wife and two sons to the land of Moab. Now, since this, is a, this story is nearly 90% possible, 90% dialogue, it is possible that Elimelech sat down with his wife, Naomi, and, and asked her what she thought he should do. But the way it's worded, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly convinced that this was, a one, this was a one-man decision. We're just going to head for Moab. And... Yeah, So I, I'm not sure that he talked to Naomi or their two nearly adult sons, Mehlon and, and Kilion. So they may have had a discussion about doing that, but in this book that's, that's 90% dialogue, we, we don't find a dialogue in the first part of the book. We don't find a conversation. And uh, those of you, those ladies who are here this morning and are married, you're free to do that at this point right now. You can just, not your, not your husband, don't, not, not the guy, that, uh, anyway, but... Uh, We have no way of knowing whether they discussed it or not. We only know that they moved locked, stock, and barrel away from their home, away from the nation of Israel, and and to the country of Moab. Now, it's always a momentous decision when you choose to uproot your family, but this decision loomed even larger because they moved to Moab. And we don't have time to look into all of this, but I can tell you historically there wasn't a good relationship between Moab and Israel from the very first time those two nations met the relationship was constantly strained. This was due in part to the fact that the Moabites didn't worship the one true God, but chose instead to pursue and appease false gods, a God that they called Chemosh, a God who insisted on human sacrifice. But when Elimelech made the decision to move to Moab, it wasn't a religious decision. He wasn't chasing another god. It was a practical decision. Israel was facing a famine. He didn't have enough to feed his family, and Moab had food. So Elimelech the Ephrathite moved from Bethlehem to Moab to save the lives of his wife and two sons. Look what it says in the first two verses of this story. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. And this is going to be a spoiler alert, but by the way, as an aside, you should pay careful attention to exactly where where this family moved because that will give you significant insight into God's long-term plans regarding this move and this story. But having said that, I I, I think this decision by Elimelech and and Naomi (coughs) begs a very basic question. Was it wise for Elimelech to move away from Israel, where they worshipped the one true God, to Moab, where they worshipped bloodthirsty false gods? It's a good question, but I I can tell you there's no easy answer, especially if you listen to, to what several authors and Bible commentators say about this family's choice to move to Moab, to move away from home. Many Bible commentators commentators say categorically that Elimelech was wrong, oh, so wrong, in moving to Moab. They say that because there are injunctions in God's law that say no Moabite or Ammonite can approach God's temple even if they've been living in Israel for ten generations. They're not allowed into the temple or near the temple. We, also, we know as well that, that Moses died and was buried in Moab. His, body, his bones lay somewhere there in Moab. And that the king of Moab tried to put a curse on the people of Israel in Joshua's day as they were passing by where he lived. So all those things might indicate that the move to Moab was a bad decision, but there's nothing, listen, there's nothing in God's law that says that a Jewish person should not move to Moab. And that means that what Elimelech decided to do was not against God's law. And I personally would be a lot more comfortable saying that it was an unwise decision if it actually said that here in the text. Right here at the beginning of the story, God's word says that they moved to Moab, but God's word doesn't say that that was a bad decision. Now, in fairness to those Bible commentators, the reason that they believed that the choice to move to Moab was a poor choice was because of the immediate consequences that came up when they made this move to Moab. There are lots of Bible commentators will tell you that God punished Elimelech and Naomi. Uh, well, anyway, look at they get that idea from verses 3 to 5. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they'd lived there about 10 years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, I already mentioned that many Bible commentators think that moving to to Moab was a bad choice. And we'll see in a few minutes that, that even Naomi herself seemed to think that God had punished her for what they did. So that leaves me asking, did they make a wrong decision? I mean, based on what we just read, they seem to have suffered pretty heavy consequences if they made the right decision, don't you think? Those are good questions, but all in all, I think it's too soon to decide whether or not their decision was good or bad. But as I've promised already by the time we reach the end of this story, we'll have reason to believe that God in the long run blessed Naomi and and Elimelech for this move to, to Moab, and I would even go so far as to say, listen to me, I'd go so far as to say that God himself prompted them to go to Moab, because Naomi is going to find something there in Moab that, well, I don't want to give away the store on this one. So they decided to move to Moab, and I, I think we all know that you can't unmake a bad decision. We all try to do that from time to time. Wish I hadn't, you know, uh, if only to me are the scariest words in the English language. If only to yeah. yeah, well, if you never hear the story that doesn't get told, so how do you know how it would have turned out? But anyway, uh, you can't unmake a bad decision, but we're about to see that Naomi all on her own is, is going to remake the decision that, we, that she made, and... Go back, choose to to go back to Israel, return to Israel. Think about it this way. Elimelech and Naomi made the decision to move to Moab. And once they were in Moab, Naomi couldn't unmake that decision. But she could remake that decision by returning to Israel. But let's be clear. Naomi's decision to return to Israel would not undo the results of the decision to move to Moab. And the same is true of us we can never unmake a bad decision. But when we get to the point where we realize that it was a bad decision, we can remake the decision and get back on track. That opportunity is almost always there unless you decide to rob a bank, Uh, at which point uh, (laughs) you may remake that decision, but you're you're not going to be back on track unless prison is where you intended to live. We can't unmake a wise decision. So to recap, Naomi moved to Moab with her husband, Elimelech, and her two sons, Mahlon and Kilion. And consequential to that move, Naomi's husband and two sons died, which, as we've mentioned, is the thing that has some Bible commentators saying, look, I mean, what happened. I don't think that this is a fair way to judge a decision. I think that we're assuming here that, that, uh, that perhaps Elimelech and, and Mahlon and Kilion wouldn't have died if they'd stayed in Israel, and I don't think there's any proof of that. So that's not a good evidence that this was the wrong thing to do. Now we're about to see that Naomi has reasons to move back to Israel, but clearly that won't undo the consequences of moving to Moab, what happened in Moab. Uh, she'll, she can move back to Israel, but it won't bring Elimelech, Mahlon, and Kilion back to life. But Naomi seems to have some sense of what God is doing in and through her life. So she decides, so when she decides to return to Israel, she turns to her daughters-in-law and she says, why don't we go together? Would you please go with me? And we'll see ultimately, listen, we'll see ultimately that God did have a plan for Naomi's family, even though both of her sons were no longer living, and that plan had to do with her daughters-in-law. Remember, they'd moved from Israel to Moab because there's a famine, there was a famine in Israel, and now Naomi has heard that God has, has come back and, and, and there's plentiful food back in the nation of Israel. where her home. The famine is over. And clearly, Naomi no longer has her two sons or her husband, but she does still have her daughters-in-law, and as she returns home, she'll make another decision regarding those two women who have become part of her family. And ultimately, oh hear this, ultimately, that decision to take her daughters-in-law with her will turn out to be even more momentous than the original decision to go to Moab was. God clearly has a plan for Naomi. That plan is going to narrow down to her two daughters-in-law and focus on one of them in particular. You probably already know how this is going to turn out, but we've got to keep the suspense. Let's pretend we're reading it for the first time. Naomi, of course, has no way of knowing that just yet. Look what it says in verses 6 and 7. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Have you ever made a decision? uh, We don't need to raise your hand here, but... You ever made a decision and then immediately had second thoughts that prompted you to to question that decision that you just made? (laughs) I think it must happen to all of us all the time, but but that's what happened to Naomi as soon as she started on the journey back to Israel. She didn't doubt the decision to return to Israel, but she did begin to doubt her decision to take her two daughters-in-law with her. Um, It's just that she thinks it makes sense for them to go back to Moab to be with their families. It's as simple as that. So she draws those two women into a conversation. And once again, you ladies are going to love this. She draws those two women into a conversation. And as we've mentioned, conversations happen repeatedly in Ruth. And in this conversation, Naomi tells them that she does indeed plan to return to Israel, but she's changed her mind about them going with her. And we'd have to say that it's a truly charitable and incredibly brave moment for Naomi She's lost her husband and her two sons, but she's still thinking about what would be best for others. If her two daughters-in-law leave her there on the road to Israel, that will leave Naomi totally alone. But she still manages to put them first, as she, as she suggests to them that it would be best if they were to return to Moab and to their families. Look what it says in verse, verse 8 in the first part of verse 9. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. We mentioned that Naomi may have had reason to doubt the decision to go to Moab in the first place, and now she's doubting another decision that she'd made, the decision to take her daughters-in-law with her as she returns to Judah. In Israel. So in kindness, she tries to let them off the hook by by telling them to return to their families, and and then Naomi fondly wishes that that God will make it possible for each of them to find rest in the arms of another husband. And I know this might sound like a Disney moment, you know, the princess needs to be rescued. Uh, don't, Don't let your mind go there. There's nothing sexist here. Naomi is just saying, you know, I think you'd be better off there in Moab where you might find other husbands. And we'll understand why she was concerned about that particular thing. I want us to stop for a minute and to recognize how very much these three women have been through together. Naomi had lost her husband, a man who was father-in-law, to Orpah and to Ruth. And Orpah and Ruth have lost their husbands as well, men who were sons to Naomi. We sometimes sometimes say that misery loves company, but in this case, misery needed company because these three women who had been through this tragedy together truly needed one another. Relationships and ties had been broken by death, and so on some level it was important for them to maintain the the relationships and ties between the living. And it seems that Orpah and Ruth agreed that they should stay together. Look at verse, the, the, end, of, uh, verse, the end of 9 and the first part of, and verse 10. Then she, Naomi, kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. Do you hear what's happening here? Naomi has just said, you're free. Go back to your homes. Go back to your mothers. Go back to where you've come from, to where you're accustomed to. And, and they've, they've wept aloud together. Think about that. They didn't just shed tears. They wept aloud. They wailed over this parting. And the two daughters-in-law said to Naomi, I don't know what kind of woman Naomi was, but oh my goodness, the two daughters-in-law say to her, we're going with you. We're going to stay with you. And, uh, and, the, and as Naomi has kissed them goodbye, they've interrupted the whole process. And this is where we should try to understand that Naomi isn't just going home. She's going back to the place of God's blessing. And for the moment, her daughters-in-law are also drawn in the direction of God's blessing. So Naomi is insisting that her daughters-in-law leave. And they're insisting that uh, that they be allowed to remain with Naomi. So which decision is the right one? In order for us to understand how we should process this, process this and answer that question, we need to take a quick detour and read one of what we call the Deutero laws. Uh, you have my permission to use that in conversation at some point, and you'll just, you will look so clever. Trust me on this one. The Deutero laws, in other words, we need to look at one of the laws that does not appear in the law of Moses, which we also call the Ten Commandments. It actually comes, and I'm giving this away, the Deutero laws come from the book of, oh see, you guys are so clever. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. I wish that we had more time to parse this law, but suffice it to say that it means what it means, and what it means is simply this. If two brothers are living together in the same place, like Naomi's sons Mahlon and Kilion were in Moab, and one of them dies without having a son, like both Mahlon and Kilion did, then the surviving brother is to marry his widowed sister-in-law. Then when she bears her first son, that son is to carry the name of his dead father so that the, the (laughs) the dead brother's family will not simply cease to exist in Israel. Now in the case of Orpah and Ruth, both of their husbands had died, So neither of those wives could marry the surviving brother. And that would mean the end of both family lines. I have two reasons for us wanting to look at this Deutero law. One is that understanding this law will help us us greatly to understand the rest of the story, uh, especially when the term kinsman-redeemer shines its light in our eyes when it comes into play. We'll let that ride for right now in light of the second reason I have for wanting us to understand this law. I want us to understand this law because that's the only way we can make sense of what Naomi is about to say to her daughters-in-law after they insisted that they be allowed to go back with her to Israel when she's told them to go back to return to Moab. Look at what Naomi says in verses 11 11 to 13. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? You hear what she's talking about? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Naomi is clearly thinking of this Deutero law when she responds to her daughter's in-law and she explains to them if they think she's going to provide them with new husbands to carry on the family line, that just ain't going to happen. So as we try to bring this home, let's recall what we've looked at, that we've looked at a decision that Elimelech and Naomi made together, the one that brought them to Moab. We've looked at a decision that Naomi made on her own, the one that is presently bringing her back to Israel. And now we're looking at a decision that is facing Orpah and Ruth, a decision that will either take them home to Moab or take them away to Israel, the land that's going to be strange and foreign to them. And faced with that decision, Orpah and Ruth will decide to come back next week to hear more of the story. I mean... They know what they're going to do. They know how it all turned out, but we don't yet because we're just, we're just getting into this short story, one of the greatest short stories ever written. You probably already know what's going to happen, but we still need to stop right here and ask a simple question. And we've got just a few minutes. It's going to take me about three minutes, so four minutes to finish this. A simple question. What does or what should all this mean to us? We've never moved to Moab and never moved back to Israel. We've never faced a famine. We've never had our two sons die and leave two daughters-in-law. That we, none of this has ever. happened. So, what should it mean to us as we try to figure out what all this means to us? Let me ask you another simple question: Have you ever made a decision? Now, I'm not asking if it's easy for you to make decisions or you're quick or slow or you ponder things too much. I'm just asking: Have you ever made a decision? Well, the answer to that one is easy, right? If you're here this morning, then you're here because you decided to come. Unless your mom and dad made you come this morning. I don't know if that happened. But if your mom and dad made you come, you made the very wise decision to obey your mom and dad. And, well, here you are. In any event, we make decisions nearly every minute of every day, and most of those decisions are small decisions, admittedly. But some of our decisions are as large as the decision that that Elimelech and Naomi made to to move to Moab, and as momentous as the decision that Orpah and Ruth are about to make. Now, we don't always know how momentous any any given decision may be. And uh, if I'd had time, I would have shared some of the decisions that Faith and I have made over the years that while they turned out differently than we thought they would, we didn't realize how momentous they were at the time. For example, you, you may have decided, like I said, to come to church this morning and maybe you've heard or experienced something of eternal significance this morning. Or or maybe you stayed up too late last night and all you got from this morning was just a good nap. I, it's, it may be, you know, it's the whole range there. What I'm trying to say is that we make decisions that are momentously consequential without e- even knowing how truly large those decisions are. We can't see the end from the beginning. We can't see the future. So any decision that I make may be incredibly momentous without my knowing. it. So that makes me want to ask another question. How do we make decisions? How do you make decisions? And this is where the ladies get to, again, because you don't get to make decisions. He makes the decisions. Or this is where the men get to turn to their wives and say, I'm sorry that I never help you to make decisions. You know, I'm sorry that anyway, we won't won't get into all that. How do you make decisions? How do you make decisions? Well, there's a, a simple couple of verses in Proverbs that I'm sure you've read and understood, but let's close by looking at that simple truth. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. I want to ask, again, what does it mean to trust in the Lord with all our heart? That seems so oblique. I mean, it just seems really confusing. seems like an enigma. But what does it mean to trust the Lord with all your heart? Well, maybe a a different question will make the, the answer to that one clearer. What does it mean to love the Lord with all your heart? That, that goes right to our core, doesn't it? When we think about loving the Lord or loving our, our, our spouse or, or loving our children with all our heart, it means to we put, we put all of our effort into loving. Loving the Lord with all your heart means putting all of your effort into loving God. So what does it mean to trust in the Lord with all your heart? It means the same thing. Instead of wasting effort on second-guessing or worrying Put all your heart into trusting God. Put all of your effort into trusting God. And then what does it mean to not lean on your own understanding? Well, we've just said that we should put all our heart and soul and effort into trusting God. And we do that because he understands the true significance that underlies any decision that we make. You and I don't understand the true significance that underlies the decision that we've made. But he does And so trusting Him in the midst of this decision with all your heart means that you're not going to be leaning on your own understanding. You're not going to be second-guessing God. I can tell you quite clearly that in all my years of living and ministry and marriage and parenting, I have never second-guessed God and had it turn out well. I have never second-guessed God and had it turn out well. I trust Him and His understanding. And what's the best way to show that we trust God? Well, that's an easy one. The best way to to show that we trust God is by submitting to Him. That is an old hymn. Trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Trust and obey. And what will happen if we choose to trust God and pursue His understanding? trust God and pursue His understanding instead of leaning on our own understanding and then submit to Him to obey what He's telling us to do? Well, if you do all of those things, if you choose to do that, He will make your paths straight. So when we're faced with a decision, when you're faced with a decision, make that decision by trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Make that decision by refusing to lean on the status quo or conventional wisdom or the stuff you think you have figured out. Instead, lean into the Spirit of God and prayerfully do what He leads you to do. Or in more common terms, walk with the Spirit. Follow Him step by step. Because every momentous, even the journey of a thousand miles begins... The single step. That's not scripture, by the way. That's Lao Tzu, but I I was hoping you'd tolerate it. Walk with the Spirit. And if you learn to live like that on a moment-by-moment basis, even the most momentous decisions will become clearer as as you experience Almighty God making your path straight. What path is out there in front of you that Almighty God can't straighten out? In other words, making decisions, even momentous decisions, is not rocket science. It's as simple as walking with the Spirit of God every moment of every day. In closing, let me read the story to you as we have it so far. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other Ruth, and after they'd lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people in Judah by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. And the daughters-in-law said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought that there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Come back next week. There's more to the story. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father, and God, we bless you today for this story, that this record of the lives of real people who lived through really difficult times and remained faithful, who may have wandered off, we don't know about that, but may have, God, and it, it seems uh, it seems they followed you there to Moab because there was something there in Moab that, that Naomi needed to bring back with her to Judah. God, we're going to We're going to sit on the edge of our seats and wonder what that thing might be and why. But in the meantime, teach us to make decisions by walking with your Spirit that indwells us. Teach us to make decisions every moment of every day to trust and obey so that when those big momentous decisions come along, they'll be no more than a, a speed bump as we have to slow down and take some more time. But God... We make those decisions the same way we made the others, by trusting and obeying. Be glorified in our lives, God, as we go from this place and help us to set a course in our lives that has us following you every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to head out there. We're going to, well, let's just uncomplicate it. We're going to walk in the Spirit this week. We're going to make decisions by, by not leaning on our own understanding, by trusting the Lord with all our heart and submitting to him. And and I can see that you're just itchy to get out that door. So this next part is very important. If you get this right, I'll let you go. Ready? Go get him, Potter's House.